Man, what a letdown for us to come up now, right? I know. Maybe we should have shaved our beards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Peace be with you. <laughs> Excellent. All righty, so we are jumping into Gideon today, and uh, <laughs> which we're late doing. We went through the study of Judges, if you'll remember, back in the fall, and, uh, and I skipped on Gideon because for a couple of different reasons. One, one was I, I love teaching to Gideon, and I'm a delayed gratification kind of person. Um, I'm, the, I'm the type of, I, I eat all of the cardboard pieces out of the, um, like the cereal, the breakfast cereal, like the Lucky Charms, and I leave all the marshmallows for the end at one, like two or three big spoonfuls. Anybody else? So that's, that's my style. And so, <laughs> one, Gideon's my favorite, so I kept postponing him. But um, also, we're going to be talking through the month of January about identity, our identity as believers and our <laughs> identity as a church. Um, it, including like straight up by the end, we'll, we'll talk some things just, just about our church and what it's like. Um, and then also because um, Paul and I have individually talked through Gideon many, many times. We both um, in discipleship settings and, and around campfires and other things. Um, but this is our first time to get to do it. Well, technically second time, second time um, because we did it at nine. But um, to teach through Gideon together from the pulpit. And, uh, and uh, we're having a lot of fun with it. And so <clears throat> anyway, we're, um, this is a guy who we both really, really respect. Um, very much so from scripture. Um, very real person, as you're going to get to see if you don't know that already. Um, <coughs> so here we have, we're jumping into chapter 6 from the book of Judges. So if you've got your Bibles, you can t- jump over to Judges chapter 6. <clears throat> and, um, uh, and so this is after the, you, you get you know, at the end of chapter 5, you get the victory song of Barak um, and Deborah. And then um, we get this kind of depressing, once again, as we see, and Paul's going to talk more about this. Um, chapter 6, verse 1, for 40 years they have a lot of, they have freedom. And then 6, 1 says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. Hmm. Now, this was not just a simple, like, oh, they're going to just kind of exchanging leaders. The Midianites were, were awful to the people of Israel. Um, every time the people of Israel would gather together food, the Midianites and their allies would sweep in and take it all. Um, during harvest season every year, they would gather together, and the Israel, people of Israel even knew they were doing it. They would gather together, and then they would march in and take everything that the people of Israel had stored. The people of Israel were, were, had to live in caves at times and hide their food in caves and, and that kind of stuff. Um, in 6, 4 through 6, we find out there was a food for man and beast, and they would, it says, they would encamp against them, devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, um, so Midian is on the far eastern side of Israel. Gaza is the furthest western province of Israel, um, the Gaza Strip, which you still to this day we hear about in the news, um, the southwestern uh, corner of Israel. And so in other words, the Midianites traveled to and fro across the land of Israel um, and stole everything all along it. Um, uh, leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep, no, nor ox, no donkey. They would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would be like locusts. Um, in number, both they and their camels could not be counted, so they laid waste to the land as they came in, and Israel was brought low because of Midian. And after seven years, the people of Israel cried out um, for help to the Lord. Now, just to take a second to remind you, to set the stage, and we're going to be introduced here to Gideon. Um, Gideon is going to be, we're going to meet Gideon, he's going to be threshing wheat. So we've got a video, we showed this under Ruth and Boaz, um, <coughs> what it looks like to thresh wheat. <coughs> which is you, you're throwing it up in the air, you pound it, you have an animal tread it, they throw it up in the air, the wind carries the, the chaff, 
and the seeds fall to the ground. Even on a hilltop, on a clean threshing room floor, this probably was a pretty choky kind of um, job to do. Um, you certainly, though, would have wanted to be on a hilltop, um, wanted to be where there's wind. And when we're going to meet Gideon, Gideon is doing this, it says, in a wine press. Um, and so when I was in Israel recently, I had one of, my, one of the lovely assistants um, be down in a wine press. And we took pictures of, of this person down in a wine press. You can't tell that's Paul um, down in a wine press. This does not look like a good place to thresh wheat, does it? So if you want to be up on the hilltop, the, the wine press is on the bottom of the hill because it, it actually is in tiers. Um, so it, lay, it lets, allows the wine to be um, pressed through. This would be a terrible place to be threshing wheat. He is hiding from the Midianites. He's trying to get a little bit of wheat for his family that the Midianites can't come and steal from him. Um, and that's where we're going to meet him. So I'm going to ask, and so Paul's going to talk a little about the pattern of how we get here. Yeah, because we're coming right off of chapter 5, moving into this. And so we've just had Deborah, uh, the, the, the heroine hero there, uh, the great, great kind of story. And then we finish with her um, great proclamation and even song. And then now we've moved into the story expecting probably another hero, right? Coming off the coattails of such a great story. We're all amped up and we want somebody else great to come and stand in. Um, and we, we want Israel to, to take heed finally and continue their progress obeying the Lord. But that is not the theme of Judges. And that is not the theme that we ran through the entire time, right? We constantly saw Israel come, come into a time of peace only then to sin and fall away again. Some scholars would put it that uh, this reoccurring cycle was that they would have sin, which would lead to their servitude, um, which would lead to their supplications or calling out, um, that then would call upon then their provision of their salvation. Um, or others would put it that, they, that Israel would have their rebellion, thus they would get their retribution then they would have their need to seek for repentance only then to be rescued. Or if you don't like alliteration or maybe put it into East Texas terms, they done messed up, received a whooping, and now they cry out and God saves them, right? <laughs> this, is, this is the cycle we see over and over and over again through uh, the book of Judges. And this isn't an Old Testament angry God looking around to smite all his people and really put them down and oppress them with his thumb. Uh, no, this is quite the opposite. The book of Judges portrays a God who cannot help but be generous to a wayward and wandering people. Um, because that's, that's where we're running into is, again, they have found themselves in a time of peace. But then when that peace, they have th recognized, you know what? There's a lot of other things that I can add on to this God and make it even better for myself. They've added in, as we'll see in a minute, some idol worship uh, that stands exactly against the nature of God. And so God's not coming in here. It's not that the God does not want his people to be successful, it is, as Charles Spurgeon put it, that uh, the Lord does not permit his children to sin successfully. Now, that is the problem, is that they have once again turned to sin, and so God's not going to allow them to do that. Uh, so, uh, they, in this waywardness, he, he puts them under the control uh, of the Midianites, and Midianites, not Midianites, that's... <laughs> a whole different branch, uh, the Midianites, and they are in oppression. And how stiff-necked are these people that it takes them seven years before they finally cry out um, and, and ask God uh, for help? And what is his answer here? As we will see, uh, his answer is not to first send a warrior, but his answer is to first send a prophet. He doesn't first come in here and say, we need, in, the, in the cry, I want deliverance, here's your deliverer. It's, I want deliverance, here is your first lesson. 
I've heard a, a, a preacher put it like this. It's like calling AAA when your car broke down, uh, and instead of them sending you a mechanic, they send you a pamphlet on safe driving techniques. You're kind of like, this is the point in the story. He's like, wait, 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 I don't need a lecture here. I need somebody to fix my car. I'm calling out for a deliverer. I don't need to be taught something, but God is saying, no, 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 wait. You need to know who you're calling out to. We need to make sure this is clear before I move forward. And so he sends them a prophet, his word. And we get this, that it comes from in verse 8. Um, the very first words out, of the, words out of this unnamed prophet is, thus says the Lord. He is bringing uh, the word of the Lord to his people in calamity. Um, you know, we talked about it even this week leading up. Why, why is this prophet unnamed? Um, and, you know, for years I always thought that that was so that he would never stand in competition uh, to the true reflection of where our attention should be, which is on Gideon. And, 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 and there may be some truth to that. Um, but in all reality, um, he, Gideon gets 100 verses in this book. He gets the most real estate in the book of Judges focused in on a single judge. Uh, I think it's, he's not unnamed to come in competition with Gideon. I think he's unnamed so that he doesn't come in competition with clearly where this message is coming from. He doesn't come in competition with God's word. And again, I think that there's some great application for that in our own lives because here when God's people are in calamity and they call out to him, how does God respond? He responds as he always does by giving his word himself to his people. So we may be sitting and thinking, why is there suffering in this world? Why, do, why am I going through this financial hardship? Why is my marriage struggling? Why is it I dread going, to every, going into work every day because I have issues with my boss? I know nothing of that, of course. Of course not. Hypothetically. Hypothetically speaking. Why is all this around me? And so often the response, well, God's already given us his word. We sit in our calamity thinking, God, where are you? And God says, I've already given you myself, and in fact, I am here. And we're going to see this played out uh, a little bit more. And not only here in this place does God give his word, we see him also give it through his person. Uh, and then we're actually going to see a miracle here, a, a Christophany that Chris is going to explain a little bit more on um, with this figure, this yeah. angel of the Lord. So again, this, this idea that <clears throat> the people of Israel have been rebelling for seven years and this prophet comes, and it, it reminded me kind of like when you're a parent and you're telling your kids, like, don't, don't lean back in your chair. Don't, don't lean back in your chair. Hey, don't lean back in your chair. And then, bam, they bite it. And, you, and, and the first thing's out of your mouth appropriately, even as you go to comfort them, is, now you know why I told you not to lean back in your chair. Like this, I wasn't just making stuff up. Like God, say, God sends his prophet to remind them, you know, you, the, just, just to make sure you're clear on why the Midianites have been ruling you for seven years. It's your disobedience that created this. Again, to make sure they understand what's really going on here. So here's what's wild. So God, God said, we're going to introduce this character, the angel of the Lord. <coughs> we have to, fascinating person in the Hebrew scriptures is this angel of the Lord. And you have to, each time you run into the angel of the Lord, you have to do a little work to see is this an angel, a messenger? Because sometimes our English says angel of the Lord, and it's just one of the messengers, and that's usually pretty clear. But many times when you see the angel of the Lord, multiple times in the book of Judges, um, what you see is that the angel of the Lord is no mere messenger. This is God himself. This is God pre-incarnate, so to speak, before the incarnation as a baby, this is Jesus Christ come to earth in a physical form to communicate directly 
For example, the most important of these, maybe one of the most important moments in human history is when Moses learns the name of God at the burning bush. The, the, the entity that speaks, Yahweh, I am, to reveal the name of God is the angel of the Lord. Clearly not just a messenger. That would be blasphemous for an angel to declare himself or herself or whatever they are, God. But in this case, this is the angel of the Lord is going to show up, and the passage is very clear. This is God himself who has shown up to have a conversation with Gideon. Gideon is going to be, you're going to see Gideon is, is one of the most, one of the wealthiest people in the entire history of the world when it comes to communication with God. God is going to communicate with Gideon in almost every form possible. Um, it's amazing to see this guy, how he, he deals with this. So, um, not a created being. So he shows up, this, the angel Lord shows up in 612. This is under an oak tree that's apparently famous enough to be a meeting spot. Um, that's not uncommon in Israel. Um, that in, in Israel, when you're when in, to this day, you go and the meeting spots that the nation of Israel actually builds benches under oak trees, terebinth trees. When you see terebinth, that's oak, because in a desert land, an oak tree out in the middle of a field is is respite from the uh, the horrible heat. It gives you shade. It gives you a place to be out in the out in the breeze. It's it's where you want to be. Uh, and in fact, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, you run into um, people who have an important task, at least in their own mind, um, under, under terebinth trees. Prostitutes, prophets, and the angel of the Lord. That's who you run into under the terebinth trees um, in the Old Testament. And so this is, this is significant. Um, they're looking for a good place to, to communicate what they want to communicate. Here you have, on his own property, Gideon hiding from the Midianites, threshing wheat, in a wine press and nearby this tree, and the angel of the Lord appears there. And it's important to note, look in 612, the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, at this point, it's important to note, Gideon does not know who he's talking to. We do, he doesn't. This is just a traveler to him who apparently snuck up on him and is standing by the terebinth tree nearby and hails him. Hail Gideon, or the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. This sounds good, but how does it sound to Gideon? So notice Gideon's response. Um, so kind of like if you've ever, you ever found yourself in a situation where you're doing some kind of work in the house, um, you're picking stuff up, you're doing laundry, you're doing dishes, and you're kind of ruminating in your head how unfair it is that you're doing that kind of like, how come I'm the only one who ever picks up socks around here? Everybody else who picks up their own socks. I'm the one who picks up this. Okay, you, yes? You know you do. You're going like, how come no one else does laundry? Or somebody else ought to do the dishes for once. Or how come no one else ever cooks? Or how, we do that in our head. We get all you know, worked up in our head. Well, I think that's what's been going on in Gideon's mind. He's been in there threshing wheat, mumbling under his breath, complaining about the situation, choking on the, on the chaff. And this guy shows up and says, um, hey, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And, and Gideon's first response is, really? I mean... Sure about that? Yeah, I'm not so sure. Listen to this. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord. By the way, that word there, Adonai, is not, it can be a reference to God. In this case, we're talking about just sir. Please, sir, is what he's saying. If the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. <coughs> Instant, instantaneously rolls off his tongue. Really? I mean, I don't think so. God's with us. 
I don't see it. I am not experiencing that. I don't think God is with us. That's his quick response. Gideon's been sitting there. He's frustrated. And, and by the way, have you ever had that thought? Have you ever thought like, how come, how come we don't get to see fire come out of the sky and consume an altar now? How come we don't get to see the, the seas part and people walk on dry land? I mean, even New Testament stuff. When's the last time you saw a dead person raised from the dead? We don't get to see that stuff. You ever wondered that? Like, how come we don't get to see that? That's not a new question. Gideon wondered it. Gideon was asking the same thing. This is a human thing. What's God done for me lately? I mean, yeah, so he did that with my parents, but how come I don't get to see it? Yeah, he did it with that generation. How come I don't get to, as if God is, you know, a show that we're, we paid to see, and he, now he's supposed to perform for us. This is, a, this is a fascinating situation, but I will tell you, it is natural for us as humans to not experience the presence of God. But that's about us. So think about the, the angel of the Lord shows up. The Lord is with you, and Gideon's response is like, I don't see it. That's us. When, when our goals aren't being fulfilled, when, when the diagnosis comes through that we don't like, when our children are creating problems, when, when our marriage is struggling, and you name it, when, when the miscarriage or the falling through adoption or whatever, it's natural for us to go, where is God? I don't feel it. But the truth of the matter is, God is with us. And this is a proclamation here. The Lord is with you. Now, what about the rest of his announcements? The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Yeah, so this word that's used here to describe Gideon as mighty um, should be one that would, if we were reading in the original language, we would, we would be all jazzed up. We'd be excited because this is the same word that was used to describe Boaz, right? So just if you're with us through the Advent season and we looked at uh, Ruth and Boaz and we all kind of fell in love with the character of Boaz as he doesn't uh, picture, encapsulate all that God is, but certainly is a great picture of God in his redeeming nature for us. Uh, and so as we were looking at Boaz and hearing this call of, yes, a, a mighty warrior, someone who is, who is worth of everything. And this is, this is the same word that we get that we had for Boaz now proclaimed to Gideon. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of should be scratching our heads a little bit. We kind of should be like, what is this? Here, here is another Boaz-like character? Well, if he's a Boaz-like character, you would you'd be on the hillside where he belongs threshing his wheat. Actually, he may not even be there. He'd probably be out storming the gates and taking Midian, Midianites captured, right? No, no, this isn't, this isn't where we find him, yet this is the term he receives. And so we only have a couple options to do with yeah. that. So here's, here's the ones I came up with. One, it would indicate that he's already revealed himself as a warrior. I will tell you, sometimes I, I love studying commentaries, but sometimes I get a little disappointed with them. This week was one with this. So many of them <laughs> referenced apparently, they would say some version of apparently Gideon had already proven himself as a warrior. Um, I don't see any indication of that. And I'm actually going to show you the next few verses, I think, prove that that's not the case. But that's one possibility, Gideon had already proven himself. Um, or that he was some kind of large, impressive, scary, warrior-ish kind of person that everyone just thought of him that way. Okay, that's another possibility. One is that this is prophetic. Um, you've heard me say before, I, I, I love Alistair Begg. I'm, I'm listen, I love listening to him. And, uh, and, and one Sunday on the way to church, and he's, he's preaching about this passage, and he goes, clearly the, clearly the Lord was speaking prophetically. If you've never heard Alistair, that's a, a poor representation. Think how cool it would be about if we preached in a, with a brogue like that. Like, it'd be hard to, to we'd fill this place. Anyway, so the, 
Um, I'd be much better preacher if I could pull that off time after time. I've always wondered if, pa- if pastors in Scotland just get frustrated with their congregations. Like, I'm going to America. Those guys listen to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Everything I, I say is interesting. It's interesting. Um, so it maybe, but again, I don't see that. I don't see anything in this passage that implies, and it's rare for me to disagree with Alistair, but the, 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 I don't see there anything prophetic about this passage. And I'll, I'll show you again here in a second. Maybe it was sarcasm which I actually think is maybe one of the better options. Maybe, maybe the angel Lord is kind of mocking Gideon, like, hey, mighty man of valor, huh? I mean, like, I don't think that's the best option. It's possible. <laughs> or, and we're going to come back to this over the next few days, or next few weeks, this is an identity that God knows already. This is an identity God bestows because he knows it's true about Gideon. He declares it being true about Gideon. Gideon's going to take a few chapters to catch on to the truth of this, Gideon isn't aware of it. Maybe no one else is aware of it. Um, anyway, so, um, so here's, here's, for example, the Lord, the next the 614 says, the Lord turned to him and say, so he's, he, remember, he just complained. God isn't with us. So the Lord turns to him and says, well, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not, did I not send you or do I not send you? That, that question version of giving a command, um, that it's a, this expression of authority. In other words, he's saying, I am sending you. Now, that maybe that argues for the sarcasm. You will, this mightiness of yours that you've got, maybe you should go rescue your people from Midian. Um, but clearly it would indicate this is not prophetic. He's, he, this is not about the future. This is about now. You are mighty. Take that mightiness. Or <coughs> verse 13, 15. So he said, then please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Does this sound like somebody who has a history of victory in combat? Or someone who thinks of himself as some grand, mighty warrior? I don't see it. What I see is someone who who immediately falls on the, yeah, but I'm nobody perspective. Now keep in mind, this is Gideon, and he's claiming God's not really with us, and I'm not really the person to go take care of this matter. So again, God's not really with us, and who is he arguing with? God. About whether God is with them. He's right there with him, having this conversation with him. This takes care of those. The Lord says back to him, But I will be with you, and you will strike the Midianites as one man. Now Gideon becomes suspicious. Now, wait a minute. You're not just some random traveler, are you? So he tells the the guy, Hang on there. I'm going to ask for a sign from you of some kind. Maybe kind of while you're thinking about this sign, I'm going to go you know, get us some stuff. So take it away. Yeah. Again, this roller coaster ride that we're going through, we have this great proclamation and command that he needs to go in his strength and he will be with him and he will accomplish these things. And Gideon, our mighty man of valor, hang on, let me go get us a snack. Right. Uh, And he kind of, it it kind of leaves us with our kind of jaws open waiting um, for our hero to come in. But there's, there is an interesting thing that Chris actually uh, pointed out in our conversations that I thought was a very astute one. Um, The, the, the language wrapped around about actually the meal that he goes and gets uh, is, is very reminiscent. It's actually to the T with some of the same amounts of, of Abraham. Uh, And one in previous stories where Abraham goes and, and, and he then is, shows this amazing hospitality that becomes a staple um, of the faith that follows after him. Uh, and so it, it is interesting because I think there's, there's something perhaps deeper going on um, with this grabbing of a meal after the request of a miracle. Um, it is probably that, uh, that Gideon 
it's, is, is, is representing exactly what the nation of Israel probably is doing, and we know is doing by the commands coming up next. It isn't that they have totally forgotten and shunned God out of the picture. It's that they just forgot who he was, and they thought that they could have him and have some other things along with it. It's kind of like Gideon's kind of going through some empty motions. He knows enough of, you know what, I, I, I know I can extend the hospitality of Abraham, my forefather. But the irony is he's trying to do that to the angel of the Lord, missing his very message. It's like he's, he's going through the motion of what he's doing, but he's forgetting why he is, should be doing it. And isn't this true or wouldn't this be applicable of of many churches today? And I'm sure of us, even in here, how many times do we just find ourselves going kind of through the motion because it's what we are supposed to do versus doing what is right because we have been made righteous. Not just kind of doing, oh yeah, this is who I am and so this is the action I'm going to take. But oh no, this this is how God has made me and he is empowering me to do these things. So there's, there's kind of a cool kind of play in on this. Um, but then even more interesting is what happens to that prepared meal. Mm-hmm. Um, because note, Gideon doesn't go and say, oh, you must, be, you must be a messenger of God. Let me go and get a sacrifice ready. This is clearly is a meal that is prepared. It's not a sacrifice that's prepared. There's, there's tons of instructions about how that is, and this isn't anything like any of those. But when he goes and he sets that meal down and before uh, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord reaches out his staff after giving him some instructions and he lights it on fire and turns just an offering of a meal into a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And that is not to commend Gideon, it is to comfort Gideon. And Gideon's inadequacies... I'm just rustling through the snack as best as my forefathers did, and I'm going to present that to you. God alone says, you know what? You're right. You can only bring this, but I will take even this and make it right, pleasing to God, doing his will. If Gideon had brought this as a sacrifice, that wouldn't have gone over well. We've seen that in Scripture when sacrifices are presented poorly. But instead, God comforts Gideon, says this is about what I am going to be doing and that's what really kind of matters and what we should get at. But the story continues. So, Chris? You know what, Paul, that time, this time going through that, it struck me. And I, had, I didn't think about this until you were saying at that time, but we talk about cultural Christianity yeah. and that, that everybody in Tyler is a Christian, right? I mean, that's, everybody goes to church or at least sometimes goes to church. And, I mean, it's, their name is, they're probably named after a disciple or someone in the Bible and like, or even worse, that congregational Christianity yeah. where I'm Christian because I go to church. That makes me, I spend two and a half, three hours maybe on a Sunday morning and somehow I'm living the Christian life. That had me until, we didn't even talk about this first yeah. service. Literally as you talked through it just then, it struck me, that's kind of Gideon. Well, here's what Jews do. Yeah. Well, why do you do that? Because mm-hmm. my dad did it. My grandfather did it. Abraham did it. So I'm, wow, that's, that's such a dangerous place for us to be cultural Christians um, Boy, that's a whole other sermon. Um, Flee from that. So um, Gideon is clear on who this is, is immediately panicked because now he realizes he's been dealing, because the the guy just vanishes. He sets the food on fire. It's incinerated. Then he vanishes, and immediately Gideon knows he's in huge trouble because this was God. And when you see, again, he knows enough about Jewish faith to know if you see God, you die. That's the extent of his theology. Um, I won't go into detail, but I've always wondered why they expect that to happen later. 
They're always like, I, I saw God and he's gone. Oh, no, now I'm going to die. Rather than like, wouldn't you already be dead? I mean, if he showed up, bam, wouldn't you be like, oh, dead. I mean, that's just a, but they think like, oh, no, now I'm going to die. Anyway, don't understand that. But the God didn't speak. So God just left, but God speaks again. And he says, no, no, peace be with you. Kind of a, if I wanted you dead already, you'd be dead. Um, says that to him. And Gideon, in his first act, kind of a courage. But as, we, <coughs> as I learned from Paul this first service, uh, still, still a wee bit shaky here. But so Gideon says, Gideon builds an altar to the Lord and calls it, the Lord is peace. Yahweh Shalom. God is peace. This is, this is a big deal. They're not worshiping Yahweh really right now. And so for him to do this on his, parents, on his father's property, on his property, is risky. Worshiping Yahweh is probably not accepted like this. But maybe, as you said the first years, maybe it's more accepted in combination, combination with other things. Um, that's what struck me was that this altar, and, and I'll let you talk more about this, but this altar is sharing real estate. And this isn't the only altar on his family's property. Um, yeah, take it. Yeah, because we'd expect, again, the roller coaster ride we're on, we would expect here that now this great proclamation has come upon Gideon. So Gideon finally gets the message. He knows that the Lord is at work. He's accepted this sacrificial offering up into himself. And so you would expect the story then to jump maybe all the way down to uh, verses 33. Then the Midianites and the Amalekites come across once again. Uh, and then maybe you would skip straight into chapter 7 where Gideon goes with some men and, and meets them in battle, right? I mean, this is what happened to Othiel in chapter 3, uh, the Spirit of the Lord comes on him, and instantly the rescue happens. And so that would be where we would expect it, but we get two interludes that actually happen. We kind of get a pause in the picture. Before we get to that, take a look at this as the rest of chapter 6 unfolds. Uh, we get two kind of things that, that are pointed out. Um, and I think both of them have great application for us and share a theme. The first thing that we're going to see that Gideon gets called to right after this, um, building of, a, of an altar, is God says to him, tear down that one to Baal. Tear, tear down that Baal altar and that Asherah pole and get rid of that stuff. I can't be a God who is served in combination with other things. Have not I told you I am God? You shall have no other gods before me. This is a clear identity of the people of Israel as God has called them. And so for them to miss that and be operating the way that they're operating, God won't let his people sin successfully once again. So he says, tear down that pole. That's that first thing. The second thing that scene we're going to run into that we'll uh, go over is the fleece example, where now God deals with, I'm sorry, I'm jumping way ahead, um, but, but now God deals with the doubt that Gideon has. Mm -hmm. So first, take care of the poles. Second, let's take care of this doubt. And I think both of those things are related together because both of them are about God making clear, know who I am. Know that I am sufficient. I, in my word, expressed to you is enough. You don't need any other poles. You don't need any other altars. You just need to worship me. And you don't need a doubt because I am sufficient. So that's what we get in these two little things. So let's start with the, the idols. Yes, yeah, we're going to move quickly through. So first you've got, he literally takes, so that one of the, maybe the main symbol for Baal was a bull. And so people worship, people worship the bull. There's a handful of bankers who get that. That's actually at the, at the stock exchange. Um, I missed it. I didn't get it. So people still... Worship the bull. Okay, so go ahead to the next one. The, that actually, Baal, one of Baal's main symbols was a bull. 
So he takes, literally Gideon takes a couple of bulls to pull down Baal's altar. Um, this is meant to be uh, somewhere between ironic and kind of a, a fighting word, right? It's a yeah. slap in the face for Baal, right? And so to pull that down. Then he uses the Asherah pole, um, and the Asherah pole would have been an obscene um, symbol of the, the relationship between Baal and Asherah. We, on Wednesday nights, we've gone into detail about that. We can't do that really in here. Um, but, but Asherah was his consort, and, and so it was Baal's consort. So these were placed nearby the altar. Well, so he gets torn down and cut into pieces and used for fuel. To then He then uses the Baal altar, rebuilds it in the form that it's supposed to be in the altar for God, lays the wood on the altar, lays the cut-up bull on that, and burns it as an offering to a correctly, apparently, offered offering to God. How he knew to do this would be somewhere between, he um, had to look it up, or a miracle, or God spoke as part of the dream, it seems, that God spoke to him, that God showed him. This is in every way offensive to Baal worship. This is meant to be as offensive as possible. Um, Baal has every opportunity to respond here. Um, he, his animal, his pole, his altar, and none of it is effective. And, and Gideon takes 10 men to do this, 10 of his men to do this, and, and they get it done. And you go, now he gets it, right? The, 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 the mighty man of valor has finally come out. Well, maybe not so much. Um, verse 27, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it at night. So there's your mighty man of valor in action again. Um, it was, I will tell you, that the fact that God invests us, involves us in his work. God could have blasted this altar into smithereens on his own, yeah. but he calls um, Gideon to do this. As we wrap up here in a second, um, Paul's going to talk a little bit about some application here that I think is important. Um, Pete Tioker, who uh, goes to our church, caught me in between the services, and he's a, he's a therapist um, as well, and he said, he said, man, how often, I'm just, just this note, how often is one of our first things we've got to do to follow God is to tear down daddy's altars. Mm. I was like, that'll, that'll preach right there, right? And so I'm just going to leave that right there with you. Just, you know, sometimes you've got to tear down daddy's altars. Um, so the next morning, the men find a smoking altar. The people of the community show up to sacrifice to Baal, probably. And there is a, not, a, not, a, not a, an altar to Baal or Asherah pole. There is a, a smoldering altar to Yahweh, who these people have forsaken. They decide after just a little bit of CSI work, it must be Gideon who did it. And they hunt down Gideon with their own his property. They go to the door. Gideon's father answers the door. They say, send out Gideon so we can kill him. And again, Joash, we don't, Joash, Gideon's dad, we don't know. Paul and I talked about this. I've known yeah. a lot of men who is just this yeah. straight pragmatics. Is he, <laughs> is it, is he just a good old boy and this is how good old boys respond to stuff like this? Does he scoff at any God? I mean, the idea of the Baal altar being there didn't mean, didn't impress him. He apparently didn't go to sacrifice in the morning. Or, or is this, is he stirred by his son's courage? Is he maybe beginning to be transformed as well? Who knows? But here's what he says to those who come. Are you going to contend for Baal? Will you save Baal? Whoever contends for him will be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself. Because his altar is the one that was broken down. Notice that just the practical, listen, this is, is Baal's altar. Baal had plenty of chances to stop this. Wasn't it a bull that they used to do it? Isn't it an Asherah pole they burn it on? Why didn't Baal take care of this? He should take, and this is his, his response. Listen, if, this is, if Baal has a problem, let Baal solve his own problem. So the people of the community change Gideon's name to Baal's problem. 
Jerubbabel. Let Baal contend with him. This is, he's now Baal's problem um, because he broke down the altar. Again, who knows what's going on with Joash? Total other story we could probably spend time on. There's a lot of this throughout history. It's a, it was fascinating to look this up and to see numerous stories of missionaries throughout history who tore down uh, uh, you know, an, an altar to Thor as all, the, as all the Norse worshipers are waiting for him to be struck by lightning and nothing happens. Or to mock a temple to Jupiter and all the, all the worshipers waiting for this person to be struck down by Jupiter and nothing happens. And the people are suddenly very open to conversion of Christianity when you see missionaries who go toe-to-toe with medicine men in the tribal world who are used to having power, demonic power. But when they go up against God, it turns out they got nothing. That's, that's significant. Um, again, I don't, the application in our lives seems pretty obvious. When whatever it is that we're worshiping, for us to take that stance against that thing, um, sometimes people will listen when we're not impressed by the fact that our, our, our financial situation, which they worship, is not as strong and we're not afraid anyway. That kind of peace is powerful or whatever. Um, anyway, turn it back over to you here. Yeah, so, so Gideon, <coughs> whose name actually means the hewer or the hacker, has now done his part, his role. God has used him to tear down uh, this pole, even though he's done it by night and he's still having some, some maybe not living up quite to the name that he has received. Uh, now we move into the second part of the story. Now he's done that. We still don't go to war. We still, God says, I need you to know who I am. You've now, I've used you to make known who I am, but I need you to know who I am, and I don't need you to doubt. But yet there is a graciousness, and there is a gentleness that happens here in the second episode. So Chris, expound a little yeah, bit on so, the second episode. Yeah, Gideon, Gideon does this whole thing where he blows the trumpet. He calls the people of Israel. The enemies have gathered. They've gathered in the Valley of Jezreel. It's time for their annual um, stealing of everything the Jewish people have harvested festival. And Gideon calls together some people from four or five tribes of Israel. They gather. They're numbered about three or four to one. Um, and they're, they're, we're ready for battle. It's time. It's, it's time for battle. But the problem is Gideon has some doubts. Um, and so I'm going to, in a minute, I'm going to wrap up what that all comes from, these doubts, when he does this whole fleece thing where he, he goes to God and he says, hey, I'm going to lay out a fleece tonight. If it's really you. So again, God has spoken to him in a dream. God has come to him in person. God has spoken to him either inside of his own head or out loud. We don't know. God has spoken to this man now multiple ways and he has set something on fire in front of him and then vanished. And here you have now Gideon before he goes to war saying, could I get a sign a little and more so help, please. What's that? A little bit more help. Yeah, please. a little bit more. Could you just kind of, you know, I'm, not, I'm still not sure about this. So he lays out a fleece on the threshing room floor or the threshing floor and says, tell you what, if tomorrow morning all of the floor is dry, but the, but the fleece is wet, then I'll know that you're really God. So the next day, all of the floor is dry. The fleece is wet. And Gideon says, probably this part's not there, but probably that's when Gideon remembers that fleece draws moisture. In fact, people set out fleeces on ships intentionally to draw moisture so they get water from it the next day. And he goes, oh, wow, so there's a natural explanation for this. Maybe, maybe it's just coincidence that the dew only fell on the something. Whatever it is, he still doubts, and he goes to God and says, hey, please don't be mad at me, <laughs> um, but can I, could you do that again, only reverse it? This time the fleece is dry and the ground is wet because that would really be something. And so he asks for this. I'm going to talk about this in a second as we wrap up. 
God does even that. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing. So yeah. final so, words here. So we have our two episodes that before we get to what we're going to continue <laughs> next week. And the, the first one is the first problem gets addressed. You have idols. You've tried to add to me. Um, that's not acceptable. Idol worship stands against the very nature of God. And so God calls his people to know him as he is. And he even helps them in that process. This is, this is probably reminiscent. We'd probably go back to um, uh, the phrase that Chris and I will toss out about this is that there's sin in the camp. I'm reminiscing back on Joshua 7 when Joshua has just uh, defeated Jericho and now they're all feeling really good. And so the, one of the commands that they were told uh, was that they weren't supposed to keep any of the plunder, but we know by Achan's account uh, that some, people, some of them were hoarding that plunder. They were disobeying God. Well, now they march into the battle against Ai uh, and they think they're gonna be as victorious, but they just get slaughtered. And they just get taken out. And so they say, why? Why? Joshua calls out, why, is, why did this go wrong? And God says, because there's sin in the camp. Deal with the sin in the camp. And I think this is, again, what we have going on here. Before we get to, we have God's people in oppression. They've called out for rescue. Before we get that rescue, God comes in and says, make sure you know who you're calling on. Make sure you're following after me. I've given you an identity So walk in that. Get the sin out of your camp. Take care of that idol worship. And I think that, I mean, certainly, certainly has to hit with us today. Now, I'm not saying that all suffering is because of sin in your life. If you're experiencing suffering, it's not just an equal equation that is because you're sinning. Um, We know from 2 Timothy 3, uh, indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Again, Jesus' own words recorded in John 15, "If if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as your own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Not all suffering is because of sin, but... But when we choose to live a life apart from God, when we choose to take God's promise of abundant life and say, you know what, I can make it better and start choosing ways other than him, well, then, of course, we'll find ourselves in places of suffering. Of course, we won't find ourselves in the abundant life he promised because he's promised himself. And if we have turned from him to something else for that satisfaction, well, of course, we're going to be empty. I mean, are you... Sitting here maybe with sin in your camp this morning? Are you standing looking at your plight thinking God has abandoned you? But perhaps you know what you need to do. You're just not doing it. Perhaps maybe you're just trying to do it in your own strength and you haven't stopped and said, you know what, this, you're right, Lord. This isn't who you've made me to be. And thus you as my maker, Lord, help me. Deliver me from this. Maybe it is that that as we saw in this story, you have sinned that you have to confess from. But even know and take comfort though, even when you go about that and maybe don't do it well and still falter and have to fall back upon the Lord dealing with this over and over and over again, we have a gracious and loving God who is gentle to his people. And I think that's what we get from the fleece. And so Chris will close with that application. Yeah, absolutely. So as we, as we look to our, our own lives and figure out, so often we know exactly what God has called us to. We know exactly the sin that's in the camp. We know exactly what it is that God would call us to do. We're just not willing to do it. That's, that's the call to repentance. Figure that out. Make no provision for the flesh. Cut those ties. Get that access gone. Whatever it is, so often we know. And, and we know that God, God opposes the proud 
So when it's our way and we demand it and we demand those things our way and we deserve certain things, God opposes that. That's how you find yourself enslaved. However, God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. And that's the cool thing of the other side. So one may be a call to repentance for you from this account, but for some, it is the, it is the comforting reminder that God is still with you, that God hasn't abandoned us. Genuine doubt and weakness are loved by God. That's right. Um, when we struggle authentically, God is there for us. Um, when we authentically ask, God, I need to see from you, I need to hear from you, God exalts the humble. Gideon is not proudly demanding that God jump through hoops for him. I think if that was the case, you could, you could see a totally different response, potentially, from God. However, he is sincerely asking for encouragement because his faith is weak. Like we see in the New Testament, Lord, believe, Lord I believe, forgive my unbelief. Father, forgive me, a sinner. Uh, maybe one of the most potent examples of this ever is the phrase, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So that's, that's us. God is so patient and God is so caring for us. So maybe what, what your response today is to get the sin out of the camp. You know what it is. Maybe for, maybe for you today, the response is, God, I, I, I need to fall back into trusting you, realizing that you are for real and you're really here with me. Even when we don't feel it, the Lord is with you. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the goodness that you are, that you represent. We're so thankful for the faithfulness as we got to sing today of your great faithfulness. You are faithful even when we aren't, when we are cowardly and hiding and doing things our own way and believe that we couldn't possibly be used to you, be used by you to accomplish mighty things in your kingdom, God. You remind us. It's not really about us. We have the opportunity at your calling to get the sin out of the camp, to tear down the altars, and then to follow you into the victory that you have for us. <clears throat> God, not to beat ourselves up, but to, to proudly be humble. Let you exalt us. To humble ourselves because we're so proud of who you are to us. We're so worshipful of who you are to us. So Father, I pray you would guide us in that today. You let your spirit speak to us as you have certainly prepared us this day in your son's name. Amen.